Welcome to EPRI Unplugged, the podcast of the Electric Power Research Institute. I'm Amy Mills. With coal being a hot topic at the moment, it seemed timely for us to tackle fossil energy on this podcast. Is there such a thing as clean coal? And if so, what role can it play in future power generation? Joining me in our studio is Jeff Phillips, Senior Program Manager for Advanced Fossil Generation. I also spoke a few days ago to one of Jeff's colleagues, Boyjet Bowen, whom we'll hear from in just a few minutes. Jeff, thanks for being here. Oh, uh, it's my pleasure. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Well, our conversation is focused on advanced fossil. So let's start by defining what we're talking about. We hear CCS, CCUS, fossil fuels, clean coal. What's the difference? Well, you know, I, we, we do talk about advanced fossil um, rather than clean or uh, um, because uh, clean is kind of a uh, um, in the eye of the beholder. Um, and instead, we're just talking about new ways to generate power from fossil fuels, which will be cleaner, more efficient, and, and hopefully uh, also more economic. So that's our goal. And with CCS and CCUS, what's the difference there? So, so CCS stands for, uh, I call it CO2 capture and storage. A lot of people call it carbon capture and storage, but we're not really capturing the carbon. We're capturing a CO2 molecule. Um, CCUS is just uh, CO2 capture, uh, utilization, or storage. So utilization is using the CO2 to do something useful rather than just put it in a hole in the ground and make sure it stays there. Okay. So before we go any further, I Mm -hmm. do just want to say it's worth pointing out that while this is a politically charged topic, EPRI is focused on the technical R&D aspects and remains completely neutral on how our R&D results are applied in the industry. So with that disclaimer, let's just rip the Band-Aid off. Jeff, is coal dead? Oh, man. Well, um, no. Uh, so it, it, it's definitely uh, facing an uphill battle here in the United States because uh, its competition has cut its price by about 75 percent since 2008. And I'm talking about natural gas. And when that happens, you can expect that you're going to lose market share. And, and that's exactly what's happened in the United States. And it's going to be difficult to justify building new coal power plants in the U.S. when natural gas prices are still at $3 a million BTU where they are today. Uh, But uh, most of the world does not have the blessings that the United States has in terms of natural resources and and in particular shale gas. And so there's a lot of the world where where, um, natural gas is still fairly expensive uh, compared to coal. And so they are still burning coal there. And I'm thinking in particular uh, of Asia and uh, and parts of uh, Africa as well. So um, coal um, is uh, probably not going to be a um, a star player uh, here in the U.S. at least for the you know the near term future. But but it it will be a workhorse in other parts of the world. So you mentioned new coal plants. I want to yeah. talk about that a little bit because you recently published a paper on meeting CO2 emission standards in the U.S. under EPA's New Source Performance Standard, or NSPS, mm-hmm. for new fossil-fired plants utilizing CCS. So what did your analysis show? Well, what we were looking at was the, these were the, um, the regulations that had been promoted or uh, implemented by the Obama administration that said for a new coal plant you had to meet uh, CO2 emissions of 1,400 pounds of CO2 per megawatt hour of output of, of uh, electricity. And most people assume that you would have to do CCS to get there because a, a, a state-of-the-art coal plant is going to be at about 1,800 pounds. So we're 400 short of, of where it would need to be. 
Um, and so you would have to do some portion of CCS. Uh, but, but what my analysis looked at was that if you could push the efficiency hard by looking at new concepts for generating power, such as fossil fuels or, a, I'm sorry, a fuel cells or um, a new power concept that's called supercritical CO2 Brayton cycles. Very exciting. I'd love to talk about it, <laughs> but I would need to have a diagram to, to, to explain it because I'm a uh, thermodynamicist and thermodynamicists love diagrams. But anyway, uh, if we have those, we actually could get below uh, the 1,400 pound standard without implementing CCS. So it doesn't exist today, but it, it could exist in the future. Now that's for new plants. Right. What about existing plants? What are the options or requirements for those? Well, um, they, there actually are none, at least in the United States. The, uh, the so-called clean power plan had, uh, uh, was going to mandate a 30, 25 to 30 percent reduction in CO2 emissions fleet-wide by 2030. Um, that was uh, challenged in the courts and uh, was never actually uh, became law. And uh, now it's being reviewed by the, the Trump administration, and, and all expectations are they will be revised. So um, it, it really remains to be seen what, what, what's going to be required there. Well, and I did talk to Boyjit Moore about the process of capturing CO2. So I want to mm -hmm. listen to what he had to say, and then we'll come back in just a minute. Okay. I have now with me in the studio Aboyjit Bowen, who is one of our fossil uh, researchers. Aboyjit, can you just introduce yourself and what your title is at EPRI? Sure. Um, thank you very much for having me here. Uh, so my name is Aboyjit Bowen. I'm a technical executive, and I lead the uh, carbon capture, utilization, and storage program here at EPRI. My background is mostly in chemical engineering. Um, I've got about 25 years of experience looking at separations and chemical engineering processes been at EPRI for roughly 10 years, not quite, but approaching 10. Okay. Well, I wanted to talk to you more about the capture process. And something that people may not really think about is that capturing that CO2 does require energy, and that can affect the efficiency of a plant. Why is that important? Sure. Um, so let me just back up a little bit. Um, the reason uh, we have CO2 and, and fossil fuel use is because we essentially take um, – fossil fuels and we combust it with air in order to liberate large, large amounts of energy. And uh, that reaction essentially um, uh, leads to carbon dioxide. Um, so essentially the carbon plus oxygen from the air gets to CO2. Um, but when we use air, there's other components in air, including nitrogen and, and, and other components. So the resulting product is, is essentially CO2 in a mixture of other uh, gases. And so when we talk about carbon capture, we really are talking about separating CO2 from the rest of the combustion gases, which is called flue gases. And so um, whenever you have a gas mixture or, or any kind of chemical mixture, um, you have to put an energy into that system if you want to do a separation. So that does require energy. And the question in the power industry is, where do you get that energy from? And it can be significant. Um, if you look at a coal-fired power plant, for instance, or, or a natural gas-fired power plant, uh, for um, coal cases, you can typically look at about uh, maybe 20% uh, of the energy coming out of the, of the uh, coal plant is um, used or could be used, uh, or is, let me say, needed uh, to separate the CO2. Um, and then after you separate the CO2, um, the question becomes, what do you do with it? And one option is to look at uh, geological storage. And in order to do that, you have to further compress it uh, to make it a, a supercritical fluid, as it's called. And then you have to transport it 
uh, to some site and then you have to inject it into the ground. So that compression and so on adds an additional energy, which is typically around, say, 7 to 10 percent. So by the time you do carbon capture and storage, you're typically, for a coal plant, are looking at, say, 25 to 30 percent of the output being used to essentially uh, do the separation and compression. Natural gas is a, is a, is a little bit lower because you have, um, you know, other um, – the, the, there is essentially uh, less CO2 created – Per, per unit of energy. So the energy penalty, as we call it, is a little bit lower inside natural gas cases. Okay, and you mentioned storage. I wanted to touch on that as sure. well. The storage is always underground, correct? Um, for this application, um, generally correct. Um, although there is other things one can do with CO2, um, it turns out that the power industry and certainly the world uh, in different forms of uh, applications generate so much CO2 that there really is, if you look at deep decarbonization studies, uh, pretty much the only option you really have is to do CO2 geological storage. And so one of the things that you're looking at is long-term, what happens in those geological repositories? Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, so that's actually an active area of research as well. Um, at EPRI, we have a team of geologists looking at that issue, um, and we work closely with other international organizations as well. So what happens there is that um, essentially you, you, when you inject it, you have to go um, well underground, uh, typically a, a couple of kilometers under, underground. And depends a lot on the geology of the site, but there's often cap rocks which are, which are needed, and there has to be certain porosity which is needed in order to put the CO2 in. Uh, typically, these are filled with high salinity waters already, so there's a lot of um, essentially porous rocks with uh, high salt content water in them. And in some sense, you're kind of injecting the CO2 into that in, into that space. So there's issues of things like pressure management. What does the reservoir pressure look like? And because of the quantities of CO2, um, you have to look at long-term uh, operations here. So that's that's also an active area of research at Upri. And are there places where this is currently being demonstrated? Yeah, for the geological side, um, the world typically has um, done, uh, there's actually three large sites, um, which is done at, say, the utility scale, uh, not necessarily for utilities, but the scale is about about right. There's one in Norway, um, which is called Sleipner, and that's actually an offshore place. It's a very porous uh, basin, and so that's been going on for several decades now. Norway has a CO2 tax, and uh, this is one way which people have uh, essentially found an economic way against a tax to put in CO2 uh, off offshore into this underground. That's sort of the sort of the, um, the the highly visible one. In addition, there was some work done in Algeria as well, which has uh, since been discontinued. But that has to do with essentially taking uh, CO2, putting it uh, from uh, back underground from uh, natural gas processing. Then there's a, a third site, which is in, in Canada, and that's used for enhanced oil recovery. And uh, CO2 comes from another facility, which is in the U.S. And so there's been three, let's say, large-scale work uh, demonstrations, uh, commercial demonstrations, let's say that. And then there's a number of other tests being uh, conducted uh, in the United States and elsewhere as well, um, looking at how do you store large-scale quantities of CO2. So EPRI is uh, leading some of those efforts in the U.S. So what are some of the lessons learned so far? Well, um, if you look at the economics of the entire process, as it turns out, um, the carbon capture side, if you will, the, the separation of the gas is really where most of the energy as well as most of the cost is. So a lot of R&D happens in that space. A lot of our, um, our program is focused on that. Uh, compression and transport, if you will, are um, better understood. They're actually practiced commercially already um, for different applications. 
uh, geological storage um, at this scale has not really been conducted except for these limited cases which I mentioned. So there's uh, there's a component of that which has to do with uh, what happens to CO2. How do you minimize the long-term risk? What's really happening? That R&D needs to be uh, conducted, and but these going to these need to be large large projects for that to happen. So essentially, um, the cost, if you will, of this entire thing is mostly in the capture. But there's also some cost inside capture and compression and storage. So most of the economic driver comes from there, and most of the risk reduction, if you will, comes inside the storage part. Now, there's also something called brine extraction and storage, which I think is very interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so um, one of the things which I mentioned earlier is that when you inject CO2 into this uh, kind of subsurface, there's often fluids already there. Like in this case, there's high salinity uh, water, brine. Uh, by high salinity, I mean it's much higher than seawater. Seawater is about, say, in some units, 35,000 ppm um, uh, salt. Um, and in these cases, they're about three to 10 times higher. So let's say 100,000 to 300, 400,000 ppm. So they're extremely salty. And so once you inject the CO2 inside of it, there's pressure built up and you have to manage that pressure. Um, so there's different ways of doing that. Um, so one way is to potentially extract the brine back out. Um, and the question then becomes, what do you do, do with this brine? And so um, it's, it's very uh, high salinity uh, brine. So there's some R&D in that space, not a, not a huge amount. And so um, that's essentially what this project is. We have a project from the Department of Energy in which we're looking at what do you do with this uh, high salinity brine? And at the same time, how do you manage this pressure reservoir? Uh, right now, the test is uh, being not conducted with CO2 injection, but it is actually being used as, uh, other than CO2, um, our project partners are, are, are using wastewater as a surrogate for CO2. Um, that wastewater injection was already planned, if you will. So now we're doing some computer modeling simulations about what's happening underground, and then also looking at how do you treat this particular brine coming out. So what do you see as the potential for some of these technologies being deployed in the U.S.? Uh, good question. Um, so a lot depends on um, the future of how the U.S. and the rest of the world decides to deal with uh, carbon or CO2 in particular. And so in a CO2-constrained future, lots of modeling studies, including EPRIs and many other um, entities and government agencies, uh, do predict that there will be a requirement for essentially different carbon options, uh, or say low-carbon option electricity generation. And amongst that will be CCS, uh, both on coal and for gas. A lot of this is predicated certainly on um, what kind of scenarios uh, do play out in the future. But if you look at very deep de decarbonization, um, then um, CCS becomes an extremely critical component of the future for electricity generation. And some studies have shown that if you take out CCS as, a, as an option, then the cost to, uh, to say, maintain um, a certain emission level actually doubles, and that becomes literally trillions of dollars. So there's an economic value here. At the same time, um, CCS does give an option for um, current thinking as well, that there's fuel diversity options, let's say, um, which, which, which could be enabled um, here as well, again, depending on, on that. And in some, some cases, um, there's actually two projects. One is in Canada, uh, and there's also one in Texas, which are actually doing CCS on actual power plants. And uh, these are about roughly 100 to 150 megawatts. In both of these cases, uh, what's done is that uh, the CO2 is injected um, not for saline storage mostly, but it's actually injected for enhanced oil recovery. And that that is commonly done already, uh, but the CO2 in this case is coming from the capture system from the power plant. 
currently enhanced oil recovery is uh, practiced by essentially getting CO2 from underground reservoirs or some other sources. In this case, um, this is the first time these two, let's say, commercial uh, things are being tried. So uh, there could be an economic value, although the cost of the capture today um, is is not enough to pay for all the oil you can get out. So there's some other financing mechanism needed. But in the future, depending on oil prices and how it capture technologies advance, perhaps some of these things could be uh, could be done without any kind of subsidies or any kind of incentives. Uh, so that remains to be seen. And when we're talking about the future, mm-hmm. innovation is really key across the industry. Mm-hmm. But when we're talking about fossil, the pipeline's kind of dry when you look at long-term R&D. Why do you think that is? Well, so the world's certainly changing. I mean, uh, you know, there's certainly more uh, diversity options now, and certainly with renewables making additional additional inroads into it. The pipeline for CCS R&D and let's say advanced fossil generation, um, a lot of the technologies being developed uh, are are let's say later stage technologies, which were started a while ago. Because at at one point the world was let's say more concerned about CO2 emissions. Uh, and over the last, say, decade, that concern has subsided a little bit. But most people believe that that concern will will eventually come back. Um, so at the moment, um, if you look at the R&D for that entire space, it is certainly uh, going lower. But uh, we think it's a it's a temporary thing because uh, eventually these uh, these issues will have to be addressed. So because of this... Um, this uh, this kind of drawing of the pipeline. Uh, one thing we we at Epri are considering is to look at um, other other entities which are interested in in, in looking at uh, ways to mitigate CO two emissions. And so CO two emissions are not just for the power industry. There's also for many other industries as well. We are in the process now of putting together an initiative which is looking at um, other industries. Uh, certainly there's a potentially a philanthropic potential here where people who are interested in reducing CO2 emissions, you know, they may have an interest in funding R&D in this space to help reduce cost and to help reduce uh, some of the deployment of, oh, sorry, help increase some of the deployment of these technologies. So that's a plan which we're kind of exploring at EPRI. Um, and so we'll see where that thing winds up. But it is it is a very non-traditional space and EPRI has not yet acted in that space very much. So what are some examples of technologies that you think might fit into that long-term window that we should be looking at? There has been actually a tremendous amount of work at EPRI already because um, EPRI's Technology Innovation Program and the program which I now manage, P165, as well as 66, the the other programs, we've all been looking at this issue for a very long time. In our TI program, we've been uh, working very closely with a lot of academic uh, organizations as well as uh, our internal. We've had some terrific internal folks as well. And so um, some of the some of the areas um, would be looking at new ways to capture. So we, we develop new chemistries, uh, and very often these are actually chemistries which we, believe it or not, do entirely on a computer. So one approach we've taken, which has been actually quite successful, is we try to predict what properties of these separating molecules you want. So, for instance, in order for CO2 to be separated, you would react it with something. And what that something looks like, what properties do you want with that, that's a computational exercise which we could do. And then we could actually predict how that would look on a power plant. So without even getting into the lab, we've been able to predict, uh, let's say, the desired properties of materials uh, for things like membranes or uh, chemical solvents or solid particles. And then we can actually work with different academic and different small or large companies and say, can you synthesize these materials? 
We don't know what quite they'll look like, but we do know what these properties should be. That's a hard question because sometimes uh, these materials don't exist. We often don't know what they cost. But we do know that if they could be deployed, they would have much better or much lower energy consumption on a park. So that approach we've taken for a long time, and it has led to some very innovative uh, chemistries. And um, we've been fortunate enough to get a lot of recognition for that uh, as well in the in the in the capture community. When you just highlighted something that is really a cornerstone of EPRI, and that's collaboration, that is really key to a lot of what we do. Absolutely, and that's and that's that's a key aspect because I think that as it turns out that um, in this in this area particularly. Particularly um, because it is such a new area, let's say, for a lot of people, that uh, the power industry is really not into the space quite yet. Obviously, this is something people are interested in and beginning to look at with us. And on the other side, let's say the very early stage uh, chemistry folks, they don't understand power and electricity and so on. So in, in many ways, we've been... Uh, We've been preaching this idea that we have to work not as a um, not as an individual set of groups. We really have to understand what the limits are and what the needs are for both of these groups. That, as I mentioned earlier, maybe these compounds don't exist, and certainly the people in the lab sometimes don't understand what the requirements are for energy or what the requirements are for cost. So that's where we can really play a pivotal role in sort of helping understand how to drive the research community into a certain direction. And as I mentioned, we've we've been fairly successful at that, I feel. Well, Boyjit, thank you so much. I'm glad we were able to catch you in Charlotte. We are here all the way from California, so I appreciate your thank time Thank you very today. much. I really enjoyed this. All right. Thank, thank you. you. So you heard a Boyjit reference, oil fields and enhanced oil recovery. Mm-hmm. Jeff, you actually used to work in the oil field. So what is your perspective on that? Right. Yes, I'm a native Texan, so I've, I've been involved in the oil business and, and worked for an oil company. And um, uh, believe it or not, we've been using, or we, the oil industry, has been using CO2 for enhanced oil recovery since 1972 uh, in uh, West Texas in the Permian Basin. It turns out that in um, New Mexico, there are some naturally occurring pockets of CO2 deep underground. And those pockets actually give us the confidence to, to know that, that there are places where nature has been able to store CO2 for millions of years. So we, when we're looking for CCS to work in saline formations, we're looking for analogs to what's already out there and have been um, uh, drilled into by the oil industry to extract CO2 out. And then that CO2 then goes into the oil field. CO2, unlike water, mixes with oil. And when it does, it, it, it changes what's called the viscosity or the flowability of oil. And so rather than making it um, more like um, you know, uh, uh, cold butter, it is more like hot syrup and it will really flow out. And then when it gets up to the top, <clears throat> uh, to the surface, um, you let the pressure out and the CO2 bubbles out. And then the oil companies recycle that CO2 back down into the oil field and continue to scrub out more oil. Um, so it's, uh, it's an attractive process, um, and as I said, it's been used since 1972. So I think that will be the first place where we see wide-scale use of CO2 from power plants is in uh, EOR. So when do you think CCS will be an economical option? Uh, it's a two-part answer. Uh, first part is never, and second part is it already is. All right? So <laughs> we have to let explain, explain that myself. one. <laughs> okay. So um, – if, if you do not have to control CO2 emissions, then it will never be economic to implement CCS because there's, as Boyd explained, there's always going to be an energy penalty for doing this. Um, and, and so 
any plant that has uh, CCS added to it is going to be less economic than a plant that doesn't. So just by definition, it won't be economic to do. Now, on the other hand, as a boy just said, um, you know, the, the climate models are predicting that you may have to have uh, very significant reductions in CO2 emissions economy-wide, not just in the power industry, perhaps cutting it down by 50%. And therefore, we expect the, uh, the power industry, because we have concentrated sources of CO2, we're going to have to go down by maybe 80%. Uh, when you do that, uh, you're going to have to have some pretty um, – stringent uh, changes. And, and what we have shown already is that CCS is competitive with other low or zero carbon emitting uh, generation options, such as nuclear. And, and we did a study, um, it was published at the beginning of 2016 for the Australian government, in which we worked with EPRI's Renewable Group and with uh, what we call the TAG, the Technical Assessment Guide Group out of the Energy and Environment Sector. And we compared for an Australian site the cost of building coal plants with CCS, natural gas combined cycles with CCS, solar PV, solar thermal, nuclear, um, and uh, uh, wind. And, and in, in all cases except for wind, the, the CCS options uh, were competitive with everything else. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, so, uh, and I would point out that the natural gas price in Australia is probably 50% higher than what we have in the U.S. If we had used U.S. natural gas prices and NGCC natural gas combined cycle with CCS could have been competitive with at least some wind options. So um, it already is competitive. Interesting. Okay, so fossil plants are faced with another challenge related to flexible operations. Existing plants were designed to provide baseload power. Now they're being asked to adapt to this more flexible mode of operation. Mm -hmm. How does adding CCS systems affect their ability to operate flexibly, or does it? Well, yes. Yeah. So, so first, you know, what what is the the challenge with with flexible operations? I have here a uh, just a common paper clip. All right, and Amy, you you look pretty physically fit, so I'm going to stretch this paper clip out a little bit so it's just bent at two ends and I want you to try to pull it apart so just kind of yank it at both ends and can you pull it apart can't break it can't break it no. all right well give it back to me now your listeners can't see me so you'll just have to verify to them that uh, that I do not have the physique of an Olympic weightlifter <laughs> correct correct all right but I'm going to show you that I can break this paper clip in into just by pulling it apart but the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to flex it and this is what happens to a power plant as it heats up and then cools down. The metal uh, it stretches. It, so it first expands and then it contracts. Expands as it heats up, contracts as it cools down. And if you do that hundreds of times, pow. Wow. So it he was bending it back and forth repeatedly. And, apart. Yep. Like butter. Yeah. So that's what's called a fatigue failure. And metal, if you continually... Um, bend it back and forth, back and forth. It it stress it, it, it has what's called fatigue. It it suffers fatigue. And if you fatigue metal too much, then it takes very little stress or, or pressure to, to break it. And and so that's what we're seeing in fossil power plants as we have them start up every day um, and, and then cool down at, at night particularly in areas where we're seeing now a lot more wind generation, the wind predominantly is stronger at night than during the day. 
and plus power demand is higher in the at, at, during the day than in the night. And so what we're seeing is a lot of fossil plants are having to shut down at night. So what we're looking at with CCS is that we're going to take uh, what may appear to be a bug, which is the, the high energy consumption of the CCS, and make it a feature. Okay? Okay. So, <laughs> so, so, so what we're looking at is ways that we could um, – uh, run the capture system really hard at night and and soak up a lot of power that otherwise we couldn't put out on the grid because it's not needed, and then maybe not capture quite as hard during the day because the, the, the CO2 that's in the atmosphere today is not a reflection of what we put in yesterday or last week or even last year. It's, it's uh, on average CO2 that goes up in the atmosphere has a half-life of 100 years. Wow. Okay, so it really doesn't matter if we you know, have a little bit of a peak in the CO2 emissions during the middle of the day and then a real dip in the middle of the night. What matters is what's the, the long-term average. And so we're looking at maybe using um, uh, flexibly operating this CCS uh, system as a, kind of an inverted energy storage system uh, or load shifting is the other term. So you shift it to a time when there's uh, less power demand. So I want to kind of roll up everything that we've just talked about into this next question. And obviously, the components of generation portfolios vary greatly, state to state, utility to utility. For utilities that do have a large percentage of generation coming from fossil, what is top of mind? What do all of these complexities mean for the power producer just trying to keep the lights on? Right. Well, I, I think the you know the main focus is reliability. Um, they, they they want to make sure that they can deliver power uh, when when it's required uh, by their customers. And uh, one of the advantages of fossil fuel is that it is quote dispatchable. You can turn it on and you know when you need it. And as as long as the equipment is reliable, you know when you push that button, you will get power. And so they, they want to make sure that these, these plants uh, can um, uh, go through this, what we call cycling of uh, up and down in, in uh, operation, either down to low loads or turning all the way off and, and continue to run. And, and uh, as part of that challenge, then you also have to meet the environmental regulations. Uh, both uh, what we have today as well as what's in the future. And so EPRI's research is really focused on trying to help them address both parts of that. So to, to design plants that can operate flexibly without breaking like this, mm -hmm. this paperclip did. And, and also at the same time to be able to meet all current and, and future uh, environmental regulations. So what do you see as the best possible future for fossil fuels? Well, I, I would would like that the the world could be able to use uh, this this blessing that it, that it has in fossil fuels in a way that doesn't uh, cause long term harm to to everyone, and so uh, the uh, the best possible option is is to come up with, uh, I believe, new technology that will allow us to to uh, unlock the energy in fossil fuel uh, without uh, putting um, enormous amounts or climate changing amounts of CO2 into the atmosphere. And um, you know, everything I've seen says that's possible. We're, we're, we're probably not there yet. And, and obviously, there would have to be a, a regulatory driver as well. But um, I, I see no you know, technical impediments that would say, oh, this will never happen.
All right. Well, this has been a very enlightening conversation. So thank you so much, Jeff, and Aboyjit as well. Thank you. Well, Jeff's white paper that I referenced earlier is publicly available on our website, epbury.com. Search using the title, Can Future Coal Power Plants Meet CO2 Emission Standards Without Carbon Capture and Storage? Until next time, we're shaping the future of electricity. Electricity.